Hi, this is Cliff Prigo for The Circle in the Square and picture-poems.com. Thanks for tuning in. Well, that a uh, little bit tongue-in-cheek, um, I just wanted to start with a little bit of uh, talking hands, talking feet. Now, what on earth was I doing? That all depends on your point of view. <laughs> like we were saying in um, yesterday, uh, talk two, part two for uh, step time. We're still in step time. So still at the very beginning of our journey. Well, I mentioned that uh, wonderful little saying what we're also honoring the uh, Indian Sanskrit uh, tradition calling sutras stitched together of sacred sound. Uh, the truth is spherical. Imagine having a teacher in 1840 in Boston and he's saying truth is spherical. And he's having you keep a journal and when there's pandemonium in the classroom, as there frequently is and should be with little kids, he would uh, walk over to the <laughs> rambunctious child. I absolutely love this. To the rambunctious child and hold out his hand and have the child uh, punish him. It's a very interesting thought, isn't it? Violence against the earth and violence against children is probably the two most terrible things. Well, so we're starting off, truth is spherical, so there are many different ways to look at talking hands, talking feet. The idea is we have a giant sphere Let's make it the Earth. It's so big, say it has a diameter of uh, 20 meters or something. So you can say you, it's like the moon, that uh, you only see the, uh, the illumined uh, side, never the dark side. So we really don't know what's on that other side, do we? Well, um, the idea of the spirit of truth is spherical is that first and foremost, whatever you say it is, it isn't. That 
I think, if I remember right, is the logician Alfred Korzybski, who worked with Einstein at that wonderful Princeton Institute. So whatever you say it is, it isn't. That's a very healthy way to start. So the teacher is the top. Truth is spherical. 20 meters, there's our earth. And we're now we're walking around. So we're looking at talking hands, talking feet from as many different points of view as possible. Think of that. So say you were an expert uh, yoga teacher and um, you were teaching a class in Mantrayama then what we just uh, uh, performed and heard by the way if you're listening to this tape inside hit the pause button and it's better to go out under a tree if you can find one somewhere, <laughs> even if you're in Brooklyn or Berlin, that uh, um, the best way to listen to this is that if your eyes are totally free, regardless of the weather, and just looking out into infinite space, and we get out and, and get some fresh air all at the same time. But anyway, truth is spherical, so we're listening to that. Viratram Veridisa, little, uh, uh, what do we call that, chant, song. Well, there's an, many different cultures have that tradition. And uh, in the circle and the square, we honor them. In the European tradition, one of the most uh, avant-garde composers was, of course, Hildegard von Bingen. That's almost a, a millennium ago. Don't try to be too precise. And why do I say that? Because she, however she manifested the pieces which we have, regardless how they sounded at that time, uh, they have an extraordinary sense of qualitative ground. That's a key concept in the circle and the square. All that means is a quality of energy, an actual living, pulsing, I'm not going to say physical, living, pulsing energy. And any music or poetry or dance that doesn't do that is not, in our view, not really poetry, music, or dance. And it's second nature, out in nature, <laughs> that it's second nature out in nature. Uh, but it's not if we increasingly become victims of cult-like fragmentation in um, um, abstraction that has gone into runaway. There's nothing wrong with abstract. The more abstract, the better. As long as it's in the concrete abstraction cycle. So from what is turning around to a way of looking, truth is spherical, uh, working it out in a script or notation or sound or dance movements or patterns that connect or numbers, 
And then um, whatever you say it is, it isn't, right? And that's true. Because there's always something more that either we mis overlooked or forgot or didn't see, weren't aware of. Don't forget yesterday we were, the day before, we were talking about geometric rhythms. And it seems strange to say that someone can't even hear that. An expert, uh, say, like a Bach or Mozart musician, can't even hear that. Well, I'm afraid that's very difficult to demonstrate right here. But it is uh, uh, a logical outcome is that uh, of that uh, we only hear our things we have concepts for. That little saying, we don't hear music, we don't hear poetry, we hear our map of poetry. It has many distortions that lead us astray. Real poetry, new poetry, begins in awareness of that map. So if your uh, map always means beat rhythms and rhyme, you know, nature, red, and tooth, and claw, that sort of thing, uh, then you won't hear the subtleties of a haiku, for example, a little 17-step poem. So truth is spherical. So if you were teaching yoga, well, if you were listening very, go back and listen to it, or I'll do it again. If you listen to that very carefully and are, like you say, do people still say that nowadays? We're a little bit out of touch up here at Heartbreak Meadows. We're checking the water here. Well, it's looking really good. It's clouding over again. It's very hot, but there's a cold front coming in, so we have to keep an eye to the weather. If you tune into that, then, um, well, in Mantrayama, and when you learn how to chant in different traditions, which uh, um, um, I just love to do. Um, with giving emphasis to what you call, again, it depends on where you're coming from. If you're a musician, you have a good idea of what an overtone is, uh, whether or not you use them or have developed that technique. Say you're a, uh, a cello player. Well, you've mastered at least the first eight harmonics of your C string, so you could play that ground on the C and uh, uh, well what i was doing with the the little uh, chant for fun and again veratrum biridis that's black true that's the translation from the i'm sitting right next to one that's why i use that word and i always scold also lovingly tongue and cheek my botanist friends and the ratio of botanists to musicians I meet out here, uh, uh, here at Heartbreak or above, is uh, a good thousand to one. Um, and when they, uh, you know, plant people, they love to speak in scientific names. And I just can't believe how mispronounced uh, uh, the Latin is. 
And um, uh, that's a real insult, not just to the plant, in my view, but to sound generally. So in the circle and the square, um, the intention is a euphonious resonant sound. That's not a goal, that's an intention. And so obviously if you're in a hurry, we all get in hurries or forget or whatever. But this plant is a real stinker because it's a, what you call a native invasive. So that's a new concept. So just like you won't understand poetry if the only poetry you know is cowboy poetry or rhyming or rap poetry, heaven forbid, that uh, um, we'll come back to that. That if you don't have that concept on your map, native invasive, now what does that mean? It just means that it's a plant that is more native to this place than I am and you are. And has gone haywire and is in a movement of going haywire uh, because this could play itself out over millennia, right? That is now benefiting from what's happening both to the climate, hotter, drier, perhaps even, although uh, I don't know how you would measure that more uh, carbon in the air, and uh, just a century of uh, irresponsible uh, overgrazing. So it's an interesting plant. Um, like Confucius said, always call everything by its proper name. That's also that Latin, because some of these Latin names, uh, bless Linnaeus, um, go back millennium. I'm not sure about this one. But it does va veratrum. It's a very beautiful uh, sound. Bringing down, coming close with a U-M. And when you chant that, that's absolutely magical. And of course, you've got to keep the movement going. Uh, sitting next to a stream like this, you might be able to do it for hours. But that sound going internally, then your whole mind, body, spirit starts to resonate with that sound. Now, truth is spherical, so we're at the temple school with Amos Bronson. I just absolutely love the spirit of Amos Bronson. Now, don't forget they started the Fruitwinds, I think it was Fruitwinds, uh, uh, hippie community. We always think we're the first ones that discovered hippies and sex, but they actually had a nudist there that only ate crackers in the 19th century. So they were pretty far out there. And uh, bless them. So truth is spherical. It all depends on your point of view. Right? What are we coming to talking hands? Talking. People are so impatient. What's your elevator pitch? <laughs> well, I'm not going to take the elevator. So Veratrum viridis, true black. So it's a native invasive that's on our map now. And I take it very seriously. And uh, uh, it, if a cow eats it, it could kill it. 
And, but the most deadly part, as the Shoshone, the Native Americans knew, was the root. It's in the lily family. It has nothing to call things by their proper name. Confucius. That one of the common names, this is a mouthful, is false hellebore. That's because of it. No, there's not much of a resemblance. But th those names are absolutely obscene. How would you like to be called False Cliff? <laughs> a certain resemblance, a certain craziness, and say <laughs> so you kind of look like him, but you're not really him. So, but who are you, right? So who is this? And then the locals, who here there's absolutely no plant tradition, even among the uh, third, fourth generation ranchers. No one knows the plant here, plants here. All the Native American names on this side of the Wolawas have been completely and utterly lost. All the wisdom embedded in those names, in sounds, in resonances, has been completely and utterly lost in just 150 years. Breathtaking. Well, they call it, uh, what do they call it? Skunk cabbage. Now, there is a plant called skunk cabbage, but it doesn't grow here. And a similar habitat, that must be said, but it's not skunk cabbage. And how that started, Lord knows. But the European settlers were not much ones <laughs> with uh, uh, wild crafting and plants, with all due respect. And if they were doing botany, then it was a very egocentric botany. They weren't very concerned about um, the plants, but getting names and uh, who could have the most species and things like that. Kind of thought, the wheel of thought, like we were talking about, going into runaway. So truth is spherical. Here we are out at the, the playground of Amos Bronson Alcott's Temple Stool School. So it depends on your point of view. If you're coming to Talking Hands, Talking Feet, as a, an expert yoga practitioner, as I hope eventually will happen, then Mantrayama is a life's work. So you need not explain anything, right? But if you're a mathematician that's been doing big data in front of a computer for 20 years and can hardly walk to the coffee machine anymore, you might say, well, what is this about? Let's cut to the chase. <laughs> so that's why it's uh, fun to um, play the a coyote, as the Native Americans say, the trickster, and say, well, what is now happening? So Talking Hands, Talking Feet is definitely about uh, ritual chanting without the slightest trace of New Age uh, resonance. So we're not projecting an ideal state. We simply have the intention to explore the great living nature of movement in all its forms. And with talking hands, talking feet, especially the relationship between speech 
in music with poetry being somewhere in this magic realm in between. Now, so rewind again. Verantrum Veridis, if you're a botanist, then I highly recommend you learn Talking Hands Talking Food because, uh, um, well, poets aren't interested in this, musicians aren't either, but what they do share is uh, in the West we call it memory. So the um, controlling metaphor, um, I, I prefer calling it the formative metaphor, it's like a deep analog image which is shaping thought and perception. The formative metaphor I'm just listening to what that bird is saying. So start over again with the truth being spherical. Where do we begin with talking hands, talking feet? So the chanting part, it brings it together with um, uh, what we normally call in the West, that's what we're talking about, is memory. Well, um, memory, the controlling metaphor, is nowadays, of course, the digital and the computer. Well, um, uh, that's all well and good <laughs> for things that we already know. As um, David Bohm, the philosopher-scientist, pointed out with great clarity that intellect always belongs to the past. And he's resonating now with Jiddu Krishnamurti, that uh, wonderful dialogue sequence of 20 years. So they're going in, well, what's the difference now between intellect of the past and intelligence, which is of the new, of the unknown? Well, artificial intelligence, as Bohm pointed out, should be called uh, artificial intellect. I prefer to call it mechanical intellect. And that's because memory, if you're a musician especially, but also a poet and a dancer, memory is not, <laughs> is not this tape or whatever, like in the old analog days, that you have an electromagnetic pattern in it and then you, you infold that and unfold it, or now with uh, bits and bytes. Um, something very different is taking place, and it's connected to what we were talking about yesterday, the day before, relational resonance. My intuition about relational resonance is that it's a universal principle. Of course, I can't demonstrate that now, so it's a uh, hypothesis in the most wonderful sense of the world, word, that it's a way of looking, so you try it on and see what you can understand. There are many mysteries about uh, the mind, and one of the first mistakes I think we make about memory is that uh, um, are these false 
formative uh, metaphors. So talking hands, talking feet is very much about learning things by heart. Why? Because uh, that's how you really make something your own. It becomes a part of your very being. So we're highly selective about what we give the time and the space to talk in the Western sense, uh, uh, to do that. To do that for. So if you're not interested in learning a bunch of Latin, <laughs> and I perfectly understand that, but you are very much interested in learning your Bach and Stravinsky, that uh, um, the techniques in talking hands, talking feet, are about a very deep uh, kind of resonance that fills your entire being, not just the narrow bandwidth of the eyes like we've been talking about. So when you learn something, you really learn it. And say you were a conductor, well, um, <clears throat> there are many patterns that we learn. Conductors have a very distinct advantage because they already have a little bit of incipient, not really, but incipient talking hands, talking feet. If I were going to do conducting over again and had the opportunity, the first thing that I would do, I'll just mention this now, would be to learn and try to master American Sign Language. When, say, you have like a president of some empire, like the United States, and in many European countries, they're uh, enlightened enough, or in California they do it as well, that they'll have, for those of us who can't quite hear um, clearly anymore, um, the sign language expert right next to them. And I invariably, like if it were a television set in a bar, I would say, hey, Joe, can I turn off the sound? I'll go up and I'll turn off the sound of the television set because I just want to look at the yoga, the marvelous patterns of movement of the hands of that sign language performer. It's absolutely magnificent extremely subtle. But whether I'll ever get to that, I don't know. But uh, it is, every time I see it, it just takes my breath away. And then the contrast with the idiot next to them, the president, <laughs> just turn that junk off. But uh, uh, there is music everywhere, even in an era of uh, what they say, what do they call that down there in hotel pandemonium? Uh, that's our new name for Washington, D.C., following John Milton in Paradise Lost. That's the, uh, where all the uh, devils, demons, the diabolus of the universe uh, converge. That's now Washington, D.C. Um, in hushed tones, I heard that uh, Bernie Sanders, it's always good to be politically incorrect, Bernie Sanders, whom I've never supported, who I think is a militarist, this kind of socialism light. Um, he does have good ideas about health care, that's about it. Um, said something appalling about that despicable barbed wire um, concentration camp that Israel has put around 
the Palestinians in Gaza saying that Hamas was responsible. Think of that. So how can we write poetry and music and dance to deal with that line of one of the few remaining progressive or quasi, is it pseudo-progressive? Well, he's definitely a militarist. So I would um, never support Bernie after hearing that. But anyway, back to true black. Now we have a little bit of truth. That, um, so if we're botanists and learning that, I highly recommend that. And you feel, if you've done that for a half an hour, you'll feel completely invigorated. It sounds like an infomercial. But there is a way of doing it. If you, let's do a little bit of talking hands, talking feet for botanists. So if you were to do, this is the rhythm. So uh, that's a cycle, right? So if you're doing the whole name, those are called um, Yang beats to honor the Chinese Taoists or Yang. So you have Yin and Yang. So that's a masculine, assertive, very no doubt about it, and every beat the same. There are no accents. Accents and beats in talking hands, talking feet, they come later. At first we're just worried about, this is again, we're talking about step time. So we want to master that idea of neutral. Does a computer under, no, a computer cannot possibly understand the difference between meaning, movement, and energy, right? It's energy, it can imitate life, but it's energy is definitely not alive. <laughs> So human beings are still good for something, but if your map of a human being turns them into a machine or even a prisoner like our schools have become, well, watch out. In a dialogue last night I had with somebody at a distance, a friend, we were talking about that computers are now becoming more and more human and humans are becoming more and more like machines. Now, personally, I think that's true, but don't take my word for it, just look at it. So, Verantrum Verides. So, if you're a conductor, now we'll just go around the circle. So, forget about the botanist, he has no rhythm anyway, he just listens to hip-hop or something. So, it's one, one, two, three, one, one, two. So, you put numbers to Verantrum very decent. There are even patterns. We're not doing videos, but there are uh, patterns that you put uh, with the hands. And here's a general principle. Eventually we'll write this stuff down, but it's a lot more fun just to do it out loud. That the, um, the patterns that we do are always, uh, just like in good yoga, uh, balanced by left and right. So if you do something left, then you switch after a while and do it right. And if you've done it for a right, you switch back to the left. Every pianist knows that. And uh, it would be good for pianists if they would make keyboards backwards 
so that the high notes would be in the left hand and just switched it around. So, and I always say for fiddle players that they should learn how to play with both hands. Um, switch your uh, violin hand to your right hand. Um, that ambidextrous, I guess that's a good word, using both hands, balance, I think that's a natural state. And I bet you anything at Amos, Bronson, Alcott, maybe they didn't get that far. But here at Heartbreak Meadows, we definitely, it's not insist, you just simply, with love, encourage children to do everything with both hands. And let them decide when it comes to a specific task, like playing the piano, writing, violin, or whatever, what they want to do themselves. That will just manifest naturally. Uh, but to keep that right and left in balance, and as, say, we're doing our spherical truth of Alcant, the sphere, if we're, forget about the botanist, we have the conductor. So if you're doing one, one, two, one, two, three, one, one, two, so we get to all together, there's seven. So you do these different patterns with a constant pulse. Now, forget about the conductor. If you're a mathematician, what's a constant pulse? Is it a quantitative movement, a qualitative? Well, we begin in the talking hands, talking feet, and in general, in the circle and the square, um, with qualitative differences. We, I'm not going to say they're primary, because uh, um, that's an open question. But we're always going back and forth, qualitative, quantitative. The great danger with mathematics and science in my view, and Aristotle had a way of saying that, but I can't quite remember it in Greek, that you um, don't try to be too precise. That's a real danger. So uh, in talking hands, talking feet, we let go and jump into a broader circle. So constant, it's a constant pulse. Now if you're teaching that to a child, say about five or six or seven, and when they have fun with painting, you take a, a blank sheet of paper and just draw marks on a page that for the mathematician, you don't talk like this obviously to the kid, are equidistant. So tuck, 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 tuck. Well, many very sophisticated composers never really learn to understand. That's a key thing in notation. So what is the primary pulse and how is that pulse related to what we call the somatic constant in the circle and the square? That's 11 o'clock, number 12 of the 12 primary concepts in understanding the shape of change, the universal somatic constant. All that means, but we've forgotten it in Western culture with I-dominant, sit-dominant culture, is that we're always embodied beings. And the more we can bring the spirit into the feet, in the whole of the living body, uh, the better. Just not in terms of health and vibrancy and being alive uh, and awareness, but also in the things that we make. So you write those duck, 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 those are yang beats, right? And if you put the accents in a bum, 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 
Yeah, then that becomes more complex, right? So you're moving in the complexity cycle. You see, I'm trying to give you an idea, the mathematician now, that everything moves in cycles within cycles within cycles. And now we change the, the sphere of truth, moving from the mathematician to the philosopher. Well, is it true that almost all frag... No, I changed it. Is it true that fragmentation has to do with breaking apart cycles of movement. So I'll let you figure it out. Well, one cycle we've broken apart is the simplexity cycle. Simple to complex and back. Nature, it's always that way. So I just said, nature is always that way. And it ends with a silence. The silence is the black in a photograph moving to white. That creates composition and rhythm and movement. That difference between light and darkness, yang and yin. You got it? So simple to complex is everywhere, and we've broken that apart, do not properly understand by and large simplicity. We turn it into an idea to be achieved and take something that's hyper-complicated and necessarily difficult and try to simplify it. So like the tax uh, system, tax code, 70,000 pages or this obscene health care that we have in North America. It's been two or three times more than any other civilized country. One-sixth of all time of a doctor is just handling the business aspect of it. So simplicity, complexity, and Mother Nature, that's our view, it's a wheel that is always turning from simple to complex and back up. And decomposition is a part of composition. That's when we break things apart. Get rid of Chopin, get rid of Rachmaninoff, and all of that hyper-saturated, um, unwholesome harmonic sound. Like the great Glenn Gould uh, said, and most people thought that was an outrage. I, I applaud. Uh, what did he think of Mozart? And he would say, I, I'm just paraphrasing, <laughs> he died too late. <laughs> I, that's only because in the circle in the square, we say most of Mozart is inherently imbalanced. Well, that's a total outrage to say that. So it's partly rhetorical. That's a flicker's applauding. That, uh, <laughs> that's partly rhetorical. If you're coming from Verez, then Mozart sounds like those, you know, those Austrian horses, I can't remember the proper name, call everything by its proper name, those Austrian white prancing horses. Well, you can definitely teach a horse to prance, but it's not the same as seeing real wild horses in the open prairie. It's not quite the same. So there's something imbalanced in Mozart because he has no sense of earth. 
and that didn't come that's why you have all these damn major keys all the time and there are a few exceptions only one in all the violin sonatas and he pitches things too high like all those <laughs> those those uh, violin concertos they're absolutely appallingly ugly in terms of natural living sound and I think they're bad for your uh, sound as a fiddle player as well but let's not get into I mean, that's where you really put on the gloves in militant resistance to all ugliness, all violence, and all that dehumanizes the cultural landscape. When something that is you feel is not right is put on a pedestal in the way of a cult and saying, this is some sort of created by not just genius, but a kind of God. But you know in your heart that it's a lie somehow. Well, you're, um, I think it's important to stand with your sense of truth. As David Bohm put, pointed out, that when the collective is wrong, say about slavery, about the dominance of women, giving them no rights, we're talking about the 19th century, a woman couldn't even own land, the whole concept of getting rid of a deadbeat husband. That wasn't even possible. So when the collective, the wider circle is wrong, the only place truth really manifests is in the individual. So we're talking to the philosopher now. Is that true? We'll leave it open. So constant on the page. Well, that's a very great gift to give to a child. So you see on the marks of a page the relationship between living movement, that we can actually draw that. And then the next step, perhaps not right away, is that, good God, we can give that a numerical relationship. All done without computers. You see, the, the only, one of the greatest dangers of computers is that what we were talking about, the somatic constant. The disembodied intellect can be a very dangerous intellect. It's certainly in the performing arts. Witness hyper-complicatedness. We won't mention names. It's the intention in the circle and the square, philosophically, talking hands, talking feet, and just generally, that other project I do, the theater of the new, that's more metaphysical and philosophical. That ad hominem attacks, attacking the man, attacking the woman, that's never considered proper. It's not a question of just etiquette and civility. It's a question of spiritual excellence. Like the Greeks would say, arete. The standards, what um, Hannah Arendt, called the standards of thought. When people begin to disrespect the standards of thought and thinking, we're in trouble. We're in deep, deep trouble. Because how else are we to uh, debate, discuss, inter-dialogue perhaps even anything? So at Hotel Pandemonium, that will be a song, I hope, sometime. 
in the spirit of um, heavy metal guitars, hotel pandemonium. In, this, in that spirit, life is, the geometry of life is two guns pointed at each other. And the one that shoots first prevails, the best shot. So that's how they think. Whereas out here, not just Heartbreak Meadows, but nature, that doesn't exist. The world of nature is a circle. We're all brothers and sisters out here. Even without having the word democracy, freedom, and equality. So that's a great gift to give to a child eventually, to put numbers to it, whole numbers. Well, uh, sticking with the, now we have the acoustician. So we're chanting it up to the 16th partial. Well, um, if you don't know what that is, uh, you can hit pause and go somewhere, YouTube or whatever, and uh, um, Just type in the search engine um, overtone series, harmonic sequence, uh, something like that to get you started. And the, uh, it's a very interesting thing to explore. Again, when I'm out here in nature, I almost invariably meet no one who knows anything about these things. And when you think, just think, if it is true that the world is sound, not a Brahma. That's a very great tragedy. So, the 16th partial, that's way up there. So, as Pythagoras discovered, the doubling, they didn't have the concept frequency, right? The doubling the halving of length on a string was the uh, doubling of pitch, what we call an octave. So that's uh, one, two, three, uh, three octaves above the uh, ground tone. And you can learn to hear those uh, very, very uh, precisely. It's a very great joy. And uh, unfortunately, um, uh, the piano tends to take that away from us. Uh, many composers, conductors, whatnot, have a background in piano playing. So they have no sense of fluid intonation and uh, uh, natural living spectral sounds like that. That's why frequently they don't make really very good uh, conductors and composers. But anyway, be that as it may, um, that's a wonderful aspect of living sound. Those whole number relationships in the overtone. Now, just to make it more complex, from that's very simple. So if we were going up that C overtone series, you go from C to C to G to C to E to G to B flat, to C, then to D, E, F sharp, quarter tone plus, G, and on up. 
So we were singing all the way, the smaller tones, um, uh, all the way up to 16. Now those are all whole numbers. And to make it more complex, the consonants are infinitely more complex, right? Now why do all languages have a composite movement of vowel to consonant and back. Hmm? And they're almost defined in a way by the kind of balance between those open vowel sounds and the percussive consonants. Well, mathematically, the consonants um, really only started to be uh, explored very recently with complexity, concepts, nonlinearity, and all of that. And what's interesting is that um, in the circle and the square, we take them as being together. We'll come back to that another time. The only reason why I mention it is that since we're just starting this journey, is that there's a lot involved <laughs> in living sound in movement, meaning, and energy. And a lot of it is right in front of us. But we don't, it's not on our map. So we don't give it, um, I would say, proper attention. So Verratrum Viridis True Black. Well, one thing the Shoshone you dig out the root and you slit it open, and it's very striking. It's coal black. That's where it gets its name. Corn lily is a good common name. Up here at Heartbreak Meadow, it's totally degraded the land. And uh, it's a theory, not a fact. But fact and fear theory always arise mutually. You can't have one without, without the other. The theory is just a map, right? So it's a way of looking. And there are infinitely many facts, right? So we could be giving attention not to um, uh, this particular corn, really, but to something else, the sound or the smell or <laughs> whatever. Uh, but slitting open that black root, and then it's snow white. To the primal mind, it would seem magical. Well, they figured out how they did all this is a mystery. And don't forget, that's a very serious thing that deserves proper meditation. We've lost all these words. It's the fifth largest language extinction going on right here, right now in the Pacific Northwest on the planet. That's not becoming simpler, that's the world, just like this meadow, has become tremendously degraded. Not just this meadow, but the whole of the Wulao is because of um, an irresponsible overgrazing. So the Shoshone figured out that they could use it as an arrow poison. Now one of the, for 
anthropologists, intellectually, they think it charming. Practices that they had, evidently when they knew, needed a new strongman, leader of the group, uh, they would uh, put them in a circle and pass out uh, portions of the root. And they knew it was de poisonous, deadly. And the last one left standing would be uh, the new strongman. Now, don't quote me on that, because I've only read that. I've never seen it. And so it could be true, it could not be. But it's a, it's a charming story, no doubt. And so I always, tongue-in-cheek, when I'm showing this to people, say, well, that would be a good way to uh, choose a new president for Hotel Pandemonium. <laughs> Well, don't worry, we're not going to vote for Bernie Sanders anyway. But Verantrum uh, Verides. Um, well, let's end uh, um, with getting out of the nature thing. And we'll do a little um, 44, was it 40? Yeah, 42 step uh, poem. Uh, a little 42 step poem. And I'll do it in uh, uh, poetry time first. So don't try to think or analyze. Just, um, I hope you're sitting outside and listening to this under a, a pleasant blue sky somewhere. Just listen to the movement as it unfolds. Death is a dialogue between the spirit and the death. Dissolves as death. The spirit says, I have another trust. Death doubts it, argues from the ground, an overcoat of clay. Why oh, mess that up? Let me do it again. Death is a dialogue between the spirit and the dust. Dissolve, says death. The spirit, sir, I have another trust. Death doubts it, argues from the ground. The spirit goes away, just laying low for evidence, an overcoat of clay. Isn't that wonderful? Why well, should have practiced? But uh, it just came to mind. That's Emily Dickinson. And um, let's forget about how um, Dickinson wrote down her little jewel masterpieces. Um, I've written about that elsewhere, that my uh, theory is, theory and fact always go together, don't forget. My theory is, is that uh, her sense of rhythm with all those colons and dashes and commas and whatnot is always um, a breaking up a 4-4 pattern. And the 4-4 pattern of her day uh, was the hymn, the Protestant hymn, which would have been abundantly <laughs> available at the churches she didn't go to. So I always imagine her sitting in her white gown on the second floor in her private room with the window open and these hymn tunes, marvelous hymn tunes, um, 
coming in and, you know, they can, if they get stuck, this isn't Bach, of course. Um, if they're just uh, become very mechanical, then they lose their charm. So, if you straighten that out, death is a dialogue between the spirit and the dust. Dissolves as death, the spirit said. Another, you see, there are 14 beat lines. And um, I think we'll wait until the next time and we'll uh, pick that up again. But let's uh, stop uh, for now. And so we'll end uh, with the Veratrum Rarities. So that's simply six steps. Veratrum Rarities. And then we put a little pause at the end. Well, that's it for now. Thank, thanks for listening. This is Cliff, signing off for the picture-poems.com website in the circle in the square. Ciao for now.